Hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, raise it up and let me, let me see it. Wave, wave it at me here if you've got a Bible. Hey, good, good, good. If you've got an electronic Bible, wave it at me. Now, Jerry, all right, okay. Well, those are the easy ones to find this book in. If you uh, held up an actual physical book Bible, uh, begin to turn to the book of Joel. The book of Joel there in the Old Testament, because it may take you a little while. It's a small book, just a, a couple of uh, three chapters. And uh, the book of Joel. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 today. And uh, going to be thinking about what the locusts have eaten. What the locusts have eaten. You know, I think that our nation is in a, a very tumultuous time. And I know that many of you feel the same way. You understand, you, you, you hear the news, you see what's going on at... Uh, gas pumps and workplaces and all these kinds of things. Um, our nation is facing a lot of difficulties. Many individuals, business owners, uh, just laborers, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, many families facing uh, trials and, and hardship these days. And You know, while the church of Jesus Christ certainly has, above all, a message of hope, we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to speak about those things. We need to be grounded and rooted in those things. But also, I'm just of the conviction that we need to have solid biblical answers about the difficulties that we face all around us in our world. And, and try to seek to have an understanding of what God may be doing in our day. And... Uh, I'll tell you, I've been praying for uh, quite a while, maybe even for a year, that God would help uh, give me and, and give Christians in our day, give our church a discernment and an understanding about what He's doing in this day. Because I'm convinced that He wants us to be a part of His plan and to have at least some level of answers and, and understanding. And I'll tell you this, for the last couple of weeks, I cannot get away from... Joel chapter 1. <laughs> it has continually come before my eyes and I feel like it's something that the Lord is directing me to. I even shared with the deacons this Wednesday. I said, y'all be reading, reading uh, Joel chapter 1. I just can't get away from, from this. And, um, uh, and I think that maybe Joel chapter 1 provides us with, or at least me, with some answers to the prayer I've been praying that I would understand the days and times in which we live and what God is doing. So in this Old Testament minor prophet book, Joel, we're going to see some things. We're going to see a nation that is in grave trouble. And we're also going to see that the Lord spoke to the people through his prophet about what he was doing in the midst of their trouble. And so Joel gives a message. He tells them exactly what God wants them to know about why the trouble has come and how God wants them to respond and what he is going to do if they respond. So we're going to look at Joel 1 verses 1 through 15. A little bit different format and, and breakup of the thing. I just want to walk through this and, and uh, good grief. I normally have three sermon points. I have six, but fear not. Be of good cheer. Um, they'll go fairly quickly. All right. First is verse 1. Let's read that. Here's an introduction to the prophet and the author, Joel. Since the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. 
The only background that we get in this book is the prophet's name and his daddy's name. Joel, the son of Pethuel. Joel means Yahweh is God, or some say it means I worship God, the true God. There are no dates. He doesn't tell about any of his friends or contemporary prophets or anything like that. He doesn't speak of any wars or, or, or kings that would give us a context in terms of history about the time in which he is writing. And I think that one of the reasons may be in the Lord's uh, sovereign plan was that so we don't tie the message of Joel just down to one specific historical place and setting, but that we really see that what is in this book is timeless truth. There are some things here that even as Joel unravels them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's really looking out into the future and seeing things that are going to happen all through the glorious and terrible future of mankind on this earth. And so we're really not given very much, but I think it's a timeless book as we glimpse both into the purposes of God and into the future of what God is going to do on this earth. Now, we can't go through the whole book, of course, and I'm, I don't think I'm going to preach on uh, Joel again. I'm going on vacation this week, and I won't be here next week, and then, you know, it's Thanksgiving, and, and I th but I just know that I need to share these things with you today. I'll let you read the rest of Joel. It's a beautiful book, a wonderful book, and uh, there's a lot of hope here, even though it begins with grave difficulty. Verses 2 and 3, now we're informed that there is a problem in the nation of Israel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. Joel, he just says, basically, I'm Joel, my daddy is Pethuel, and boom, no small talk, no real introduction, no chit-chat, no, no breaking the news softly. What you have is like a breaking headline. If a news anchor were to break into your favorite TV show and say, we interrupt this show because we have a special piece of news and they just get right in it. There is a grave tone to what is being conveyed here. It is a serious problem in the nation and he says it's so serious what you need to do is gather the elders he said get your daddy and get your grandpa get your fathers get the elders the older folks all together and what I'm going to tell you I want you to ask him have you ever seen or heard anything like this the assumption is that you have not they will have not heard of such a thing in Israel because nothing like this had ever happened to this scale. It's a calamity of great magnitude. Not only that, he says, I'm, this is of such seriousness and it is so unique that it is something that you're going to need to tell your sons about. And they're going to want to tell their sons about and they are going to want to tell their sons about. To use the verbiage that we've heard until we're sick of it in the last couple of years, these were unprecedented times. Nothing like this had happened before, nor would it in the generations to come, at least down to three generations. It was an unprecedented problem of serious nature in Israel. Now verse 4, we're informed about the nature of the problem that Joel is speaking about. 
Here it is. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has eaten, or has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Four generations, if you will, of locusts. Four different kinds of locusts have come and decimated and devastated the entire nation of Israel. He talks about the chewing insects. You know, I don't think that uh, the Bible writer here, I don't think Joel or the translators are trying to give us a lesson in entomology. And so what you have is you have multiple translations of these things. What we're meant to see is that it was a successive devastation after devastation after devastation after devastation for passes, if you will, of different kinds of locusts. If you think about chewing insects, apparently if we follow that line of translation, chewing locusts have come through and they have done grave initial damage, chewed up maybe a little bit of everything, eaten some fruit, chewed on the leaves, damaged the plants, and when that damage comes, it causes diseases and all kinds of things. And if that were not bad enough, at some later point then, maybe when people were uh, out scouting the crops and thinking, well, we're going to have a 25% harvest or whatever, another generation or pass of locusts comes, and it's the swarming locusts. When you think about swarming, that means they come in mass. I mean, like a black cloud, they come in, and they're everywhere. And they're attacking the plants and the trees. And then if that were not enough, once they have made their pass, and they've left a little bit apparently, there were some things they did not eat. Now another group comes in. And I think when it says crawling locusts, what you can understand about crawling locusts, if you've ever experienced like in our area, uh, army worms. Fall army worms too. I mean, they move really slow and you can see them, but it's almost like you can just watch them moving through a field. And one day, if you know where army worms have come in and they're crawling along, it is absolutely amazing and terrifying of what they can eat up as they slowly make their way through the field. So probably these worms or these larvae have Basically, just like army worms. How many of y'all have experienced army worms? I know some of you that farm or you watch the countryside here. They come through and what they leave in their wake is nothing but brown stems and sticks. And then another pass of locusts comes. When only stems and sticks and trunks of the trees remain, the stripping locusts. Apparently, they gnaw at the bark of the trees and there are such a things uh, as called uh, twig girdlers. They go around and they just eat around a plant, around a stem, around a branch, around a trunk. And in doing so, they girdle the plant or the tree and they effectively kill it because no nutrients can come up or down. And so they have now destroyed the entire countryside of the nation of Israel. It is agricultural and economic Armageddon and devastation. What specifically had the locusts eaten? Now I want us to read in verses 5 through 12 as he has told now about the four generations or passes of locusts but he gives us more insight into what has been eaten. Verses 5 through 12. Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers on account 
of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white, well like a virgin, girded with a sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. That's serious. Verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up. And the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of man. What specifically had the locusts eaten? Maybe the better question is what had the locusts not destroyed? They ate the fruit of the grape vines. They ate the grapes off of the vine. They ate the figs off of the trees such that there would be no wine, no sweet wine, no figs. You know, grapes and figs represent some things. They are emblematic of some things. Number one, they are food and drink that can be preserved and kept throughout the year. So if you will, you could say some of their key storage crops, the things that they counted on after the harvest of having to eat and drink they're gone the possibility is not there also I think these represent the delicacies and the high value crops some of the primary cash crops you can think about it this way without the grapes and without the figs basically income the cash crop that is one of the primary of the entire nation is not there put it this way and I want you to think about these things as we walk through them. Maybe you could just kind of set these right alongside some of the things that you're hearing about and seeing about and you're hearing fears of in our country. And you could just say this, no paychecks. For many, no paychecks. The vine and the figs have been eaten off the trees. Not only that, it says they've destroyed and splintered the vineyards, the orchards and the groves of the trees that produce the nuts, and the various oil crops. You know what these splintered trees and vines represent? The future. The future. You know, it's one thing when you have a perennial crop or a grove of trees or something like that, it's one thing to have a bad crop year. It's another for the entire grove or vineyard or orchard to be killed. That is the future. That is the retirement. That is the family business. It is at this point already destroyed. He says then the grain and the new wine and the oil. That's in verse uh, 10 or 11 there. That has failed. You know what? These represent the grain, the new wine, and the oil. Again, staple crops. Things that the people depended on, of course. But also raw materials for manufacturing. There were people who would take these raw commodities and staple crops and then add value to them, process them. That represented more jobs, more money for other people. These are the wares of the merchants there on the streets. Not only that, I was reading a commentary about the wine 
the grain and the oil. And one Bible scholar said this, these are the key ingredients to the foods, the medicines, the personal hygiene products, and the fuels that they use to cook and to light their lamps. Think about that. The grain, the new wine and the oil, the fuel supply, medicines, personal hygiene products, perfumes, soaps, shampoos, toilet paper. All of these kinds of things have been impacted now. The wheat and the barley crops. These were the low-value peasant farmer crops, by and large. So, the poor farmers are impacted. Not only that, the crops like apples and pomegranates and palms, these are the wealthy landowners' crops. The poor were impacted, and the rich were impacted. I tell you, folks, when you read this, everybody, everybody felt it. In short, they had eaten almost everything that could be eaten. And no one immune from it. And then this is what kept coming to my mind. What did the locusts really eat? Or maybe we could say, what did they metaphorically eat? Because God was doing something. The prophet Joel he makes it very clear that this was not just some sort of anomaly or accident of nature. This was not uniquely the work of Satan or something like that. As you read the book, God is at work in the midst of this crisis. It is, in fact, the locusts are called in a later chapter, the army of the Lord. God is wanting to do something and to show these people something. And I think as we think about maybe what was really stripped away in this disaster... Maybe it gives us a hint of what God wanted to do then. And maybe when we find ourselves as a nation or as a people or as a family in trouble, what might the Lord be trying to reveal to us and show to us about where we are wayward and where we need to go? What had the locusts really eaten and stripped away? And the first thing that I jotted down was they ate away the people's impotent and ineffective idols. It exposed the impotent and ineffective idols. And I get that from talking about the wine and the sweet wine taken away from the drunkards. Those who depend upon the wine and the sweet wine for their joy. And he says, and it's interesting, he doesn't really buy, uh, uh, lambast or rebuke them for being drunkards or anything like that. He just says this, weep and well because it's taken from you. This thing that you depend upon in your life for your source of joy. You know, really, in some ways, an idol <clears throat> is a thing that takes the place of God. And it becomes the thing that directs our lives. The thing that really motivates us. The thing that we look to. And if we have that, we're happy. And if we don't have that, we're not happy. And when anything but God is at the center of our lives and hearts, it's an idol. But the thing is, all of these things, I, I heard once, the, uh, I don't know if it's Matt Chandler who it was, he said, um, our hearts 
are these continual idol-making factories. We're continually looking for something to become the center of our life that ultimately cannot produce happiness and joy that lasts. Just like wine. These people, when you have the wine, man, you get happy and you're glad and it's a picture of reveling there with their friends, but take it away. He says, weeping and mourning comes. Wine does not produce a lasting joy and happiness and ultimately nothing can other than the Lord himself. And so I think it exposed some of the impotent and ineffective idols that people put at the center of their lives. The second thing I jotted down was these locusts ate away at the empty religious rituals and routines that were going on. That ate away at the empty religious rituals and routines. And where I take that from is this idea where he says, I want you to weep and well, you priests and ministers of the Lord, because the drink and the grain offerings have ceased. <laughs> there is no grain. There is no wine. So people can't bring in their offerings. You want to hit a preacher where it hurts? They're at the offering. And you think about this. And the drink and the grain offerings were those that were, were burned every day. And it represented a fellowship and a communion with God. And that's broken. And I think what the Lord is trying to do is to help the people see, you know, you had these things going on. You were bringing in your offerings and the priests were burning them. But there was really no behind it, no true fellowship and communion with the Lord. It was, I believe, empty rituals and routines. And I know this. I know that it is so easy for all of us. And I'll say this. I mean, this is probably the best, best word aimed at preachers and ministers and people who are involved in the daily routines of ministry and church life. It's to say this. We can allow, if we're not careful, our routines and our rituals and our activities to replace a vibrant and living relationship with the Lord. And maybe not even realize that it's happened. And so now, the grain offerings and the drink offerings have caused the plethora of religious rituals to cease. All of the religious activities that were really ultimately cheap and hollow because there was no heart in them, apparently, based on what we're going to see here in just a moment. So God exposed that. That really... There's no heart to your rituals and routines. And I think the third thing that the locust stripped away and ate away at and revealed is a silly illusion of self-sufficiency. When he talks to the farmers, be ashamed, you farmers, for your crop has failed, your fields are in distress, and your forests are eaten away. Be ashamed. I tell you, probably there is no group of folks that is more resilient and, and has a little bit of the mindset of pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and keep on plugging on and, and we can do this and we can make it. We can do it on our own. There's probably no group that does that more than farmers. And I'm not just picking on all you farmers out there. But, I mean, that's the truth. Farmers are get-her-done kind of people, and they push through hardship. And now, that illusion of self-sufficiency is gone. Man, there are so many weird things going on in our country. Here's one. Try to find a certain size of tractor tire. I called for a tractor tire not long ago. And uh, 
you know, again, here's self-sufficient farmer. And I called the, the, the tire store and they're like, uh, we're having a tire shortage. What? Yeah, I don't know if I can get that. And on and on it goes. Price of fertilizer. There are just so many things right now in our economy, agricultural and otherwise, that we have always, or at least for the past couple of generations, we've just taken for granted. We just assume that it's going to be there. But what if one day we wake up and it's not? If you couldn't get tires, how would your life change? If you could not get fuel, diesel fuel, Here's one, seriously. Farmer, if you cannot get fertilizer, how is your farm going to change? And on and on it goes to all of the things that we have to have. And yet we somehow still believe many times that we can make it in this old world on our own. That we have done this ourselves by our own strength. <laughs> and we don't need anybody, not God or anyone else. And so... This bubble is busted of the silly illusion of self-sufficiency. I think that is some things. Some are, those are some of the things that have been stripped away. As God has now pulled back some of his temporal blessings. That the nation has just come to somehow think that they did it on their own. And God strips these things away. And maybe ask the question, where are you at now? If I don't pour out my blessings, how are you doing now? You've forgotten me. You have forgotten that I am the source of all joy and all blessings. How are you doing? Verse 12. The end result is that rejoicing had dried up. Not just the plants, not just the trees, but the joy and gladness of the people had shriveled up and dried up and was gone. What was the Lord up to? Hey, here you go. I'm on point six, by the way, if you're following along. This is it. What was the Lord up to? What did he want the people to understand, to feel, to do, to know? And I think here are where the timeless truths and principles I think these are some things that we could say in the difficulty that we're in today. Maybe these are two things that God is up to. He wants us to hear and to know and to do. Two things, write these down if you're taking notes. There's a heart cry and there is a harbinger. A heart cry and a harbinger. There is a heart cry from the Lord in the midst of all these to the people. From his heart to their heart. He's trying to get beyond their rough and tough and calloused exterior and get down to the soul, to the heart. He's crying out to their heart. And here's what he's saying. Turn your heart back to me. God wants their heart. Not just their rituals. Not just their offerings. He wants them. And this is evident in the call that the Lord gives to the people. Here's what he says. Consecrate a fast. That is, set aside a period of time and call all of the people of the land to fast. <clears throat> Proclaim a solemn assembly. This is not a fun rah-rah, 
cheerleader-led assembly. This is a solemn assembly, which means that we're getting serious about coming before the Lord. This is not rut and routine. This is a serious call from the Lord that, hey, your time may be short. And I want you to gather up all the people and call this solemn assembly, and it should be accompanied by a fast. You know, a fast is, is a time when we do it away or, or get away and don't use something, specifically food, so that we can focus solely on the spiritual things and focus on the Lord. And he says, I want you to do that. I want you to proclaim a fast and, and, and call this serious and solemn assembly. And it is to be heeded by everybody from the priest down to the pauper. From the Pope to the poor man, this is for everybody. You preachers, it's for you too. It's for everybody. And I want you, he says, cry out to the Lord. Let's look at this, verses 13 through 15. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Well, O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Cry out to the Lord. When someone cries out, they are serious and they're doing business with the one they cry out to. This is a heart cry from the Lord. For you to cry out back to him. Let me ask you a question today. How's your heart? Because the Lord knows your heart. I think usually it's we are the last ones to really know. And sometimes we just don't get still enough and serious enough to really think about what condition our spiritual heart is in. Could you say and could I say that our inner life is marked by this an overwhelming love of God that we love God with all our heart soul mind and strength that's the that's the number one command the number one thing that we are to do in this life is to love the Lord our God with everything and I, I guess we should just hear the question is that the condition of your heart do you love the Lord is he occupying the throne of your heart and life? Is there a seriousness, an earnestness in your walk with the Lord? Is it real? That's a, that's a good way to ask it. Is it real? Or are you just playing around with religion? Are you just counting on maybe your attendance or your offering or whatever to satisfy the spiritual itch? To check a box or is it real for you? And I think that maybe that's one of the first things the Lord is doing in our day. Is beginning to strip away some things so that our hearts would become attentive to Him. He's crying out to our heart. He's calling to us. Come to me. The second thing that is clear as I study the book of Joel, it's not just here in the passage we read, but it's throughout the whole book, 
is that the locust plagues were a harbinger or a forerunner or an announcement or a preparatory thing to get them ready for a greater judgment that was to come or is to come. And I read that in the last verse, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is a technical term. And Joel, maybe more than any other Old Testament prophet, develops this idea. He speaks about it in at least five different places. The day of the Lord. He talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord. There is the day of the Lord that is coming. The locusts were not the ultimate day of the Lord. Just a little taste, a foretaste of this coming day of judgment that is promised, folks, not just in the book of Joel, not just in obscure minor prophets of the Old Testament, but all through the Bible from beginning to end, there is a judgment of the Lord where he will judge every person and he will judge all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations, all the peoples. There is a great and terrible day of the Lord's judgment that is coming. That's an interesting juxtaposition. Great and terrible. We don't really think about those things going together. But that's exactly in one fell swoop what it will be. It will be great. The judgment of the Lord for those who have trusted in the Lord. And it will be terrible for the disobedient who have not yielded their lives to their Creator who have in stubborn opposition for whatever number of days they are given on this earth, have shaked their fist in the face of God and says, I will not yield to you. It will be great for those who have yielded to God and terrible for those who have not. And I'll let you do your reading in the book of Joel, but know this. There is a coming ultimate day of the Lord. For all peoples and all nations. And this locust plague was just like the first little birth pain, if you will. Just a little contraction. That they were to connect with a final, ultimate deliverance and destruction that is the day of the Lord. The Bible says this. Behold, Romans chapter 11. Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. And I'll tell you, I've really struggled with this idea of God bringing this destructive thing and hurting people and, 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 and ruining people's savings and, and, and all of this. I thought, why would God do that? Does he not like apple trees and fig trees and grapes? He, he created all that stuff. And I think this is ultimately what it is. It's the severe kindness of the Lord. Better to lose these things and understand the seriousness of not giving your heart to the Lord. Better to happen through locust plagues than in the final judgment. It's the severe kindness of God to say this is a warning that there is a judgment to come. There was another harbinger given in the Bible that shows us the severe kindness of the Lord that helps us prepare for the final judgment. And that's the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is a severe kindness. It's an execution of a man who is the God-man. And it's severe in that it shows us that the wages of sin is death. And God will judge all sin. And it's a kindness. 
And that it is an offer for us to come under the cross and allow God's wrath for sins, for our sins, to be taken by the Lord Jesus so that we, in the final day, will not be under wrath and condemnation, but that we will be saved. The locusts, the cross, folks, the things we face in our day, I think that we need to hear this. And we as Christians need to know this. That the Lord is warning of the great and terrible day of judgment. Nobody likes to talk about judgment. John, I uh, sent him the, the Joel 1, what the locusts locust have eaten uh, title yesterday for, uh, you know, the, the social media. And he came in today, he was like, man, who preaches on Joel chapter 1, right? Only you. And, I, I, you know, here was my response. And I don't really want to. Just be honest. I just cannot escape from this passage in this month. And I think that it's something that you're not going to hear this on the news. What you're going to hear is it's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's uh, Trump's fault. It's whatever's fault. It's China's fault. It's whoever's fault. And I'll be honest, I kind of get in that routine. You know, it's the younger generation's fault. It's whoever. And here's the big question is, what is God doing in the midst of all this? What does he want us to hear and to know? What in the world am I calling you to do with all of this today? Well, number one, I would just say this. Be sensitive to what the Lord is doing in your life and what he may be speaking in your heart today through this passage. He speaks by his word and by his Holy Spirit to each of us. But I think we could get this from it. Examine your heart. Make sure that Jesus is on the throne of your heart. That's how you prepare for the judgment to come. That's how you can be ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord. Submit your life to the Lord Jesus. Believe on Him and you'll be saved. You'll be saved from the wrath that is to come for all of those who have persisted in rebellion against a great and holy God. And then here's another thing. I think we as Christians need to hear don't set your final hopes on temporal things, on wealth, jobs, income, whatever. Our ultimate hope is not there. It's a call to set your minds on things above. Our only secure place in this world is not being farmers, not having plenty of canned goods stored up in the pantry, though maybe not a bad idea, our only security is safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. The same arms that were outstretched on that cross and held up under the weight of God's judgment. And he invites us to come under his wings, if you will, and be sheltered in his arms. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know for certain that he is your Lord and Savior? That is the most important thing in all the world. I want to invite you today, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and understood His great grace and love and mercy to you, you've never run to His arms and listen. It doesn't do you any good to 
play around with this stuff. Get serious. Give your heart to the Lord Jesus today. Would you bow with me? Father, today I pray that we would just hear and heed the reverberating echoes of the message of Joel that you gave him in a day and time where there was destruction and devastation. And you gave it to warn a people to turn to you. And I pray that we would hear and heed that warning today. That we as individuals would turn to you. Lord, I pray that there would be an uprising in this nation of individuals who are rising up not to fight battles but to yield humbly to your kingship and your lordship in our lives. And that we would be witnesses that call this country back to you. That we would humble ourselves before your mighty hand. God, help us not to trust in horses or chariots or in the strength of our legs, but to trust in the Lord our God. I pray today for anyone who might be in this room struggling with the reality that they need to yield their heart and life and everything that they have and are to you. Help them to see clearly the beauty of our salvation in Christ. Help them to not crawl, not walk, not creep along, but to run to you. Lord, I pray for your mercy for our country in our day. I pray for your mercy and provision for the generations to come, Lord. When things seem a little bit bleak and dark, God, I pray that we'd be rooted in hope and faith and love, knowing that with you, we're safe. And no matter what comes, Lord, our ultimate hope is found in you. Help us to cling to that today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be dismissed here in just a second. Let me just say this. We've got a, a business meeting in, in oh, five or ten minutes. shouldn't take terribly long, but, but uh, I'm going to be outside in the foyer. I usually hang out up here before a business meeting, but uh, if you're here today and you've accepted Christ or you want to accept Christ or you want to know more about the things that I've mentioned, uh, would you just, man, just come out and, uh, or my cell phone is in the bulletin. You can shoot me a text. I'd love to meet with you, converse with you, whatever it may be. But you need to get this nailed down. Come to Christ. And I would love to talk with you more about that. And um, hey, listen. The other thing is a passage like that could be a little fearful, can it be? If you're trusting in Christ, there's no need to fear. There's no need to fear. You're safe. And He'll carry you safely through. No matter what comes here, you're safe in the arms of God. So leave this place with good cheer and hope, knowing that the Lord loves you if you belong to Christ, all right? You're dismissed, and we'll meet back here in just over five or ten minutes.